you know, I've been wearing glasses or, or contacts every day since I was 12 years old, and I can't imagine, you know, living a, a single day, you know, without this simple technology that's been around for hundreds of years. Welcome to Mission Critical, a podcast about the big picture, the purpose, and the values that drive today's most game-changing companies, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm your host, Lance Chung, Editor-in-Chief of Bay Street Bull, and I'll be introducing you to a group of brilliant minds who are making an impact on the world and forging the path ahead. While they may all be very different from one another, the question remains the same. What's your mission? If the eyes are the windows to your soul, then what do a pair of eyeglasses say about you? For many, eyewear is an extension of oneself. Quite literally, when you consider the fact that approximately 68% of Canadians wear corrective lenses, and figuratively, as a reflection of personal style and expression. For years, however, the $160 billion global eyewear industry was controlled by a handful of companies that kept prices high and quality low. That is, until Warby Parker stepped onto the scene in 2010, shaking an entire industry up by offering high-quality eyewear at an accessible price directly to the consumer. Founded in Philadelphia by Neil Blumenthal, Andrew Hunt, David Goboa, and Jeffrey Rader out of a venture initiation program of the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, the company soon learned that there was a community clamoring for elevated design in prescription glasses that wouldn't cost hundreds of dollars. Within a year of launching, Warby Parker had earned the interest of Vogue with a feature that caught the attention of both customers and investors alike. Fast forward to 2021, and Warby Parker was valued at 6.8 billion US dollars and has distributed over 10 million pairs of glasses around the world. But despite their commercial success, Warby Parker's founders have set their sights on far more ambitious pursuits. In this episode, co-founder David Gilboa joins me to talk about how Warby Parker grew into a multi-billion dollar company, his biggest lessons learned along the way, and their mission to revolutionize access to vision care around the world. Hi, Dave. How are you today? Doing well. I'm uh, <laughs> excited to be here. I love the background you have here. Is this in your office or where are you zooming in from today? Uh, yeah, this is in our office in New York. Uh, this is an exciting week. We just brought everyone back after more than two years of operating fully remote. Um, so we're uh, having people come back Tuesday to Thursday and it's just a lot, of, a lot of positive energy in the office this week. Wild times. It's crazy times right now, but it's nice to see everyone kind of slowly reemerging from the last two and a half years, whatever it's been at this point. But nice to see that you guys are, are, are back in the office and feeling energized. I want to start off my chat by saying that I was going to wear my Warby glasses today. And I think they're the ones that you're wearing. And I was literally babysitting my friend's dog and he ate them. <laughs> which sounds like such a dog ate my homework kind of thing but like they're so mangled so but i do love them i do love a oh, good we'll forgive break. you it's, <laughs> it's amazing how often that happens actually um yeah the first couple times people called in we thought it was just you know people making an excuse to uh to get a new pair but yeah. um now it's happened so frequently we actually created our own dog toy that uh we'll we'll send to customers uh and yeah have kind of a, yeah, a special code for for customers that's an actual thing that you guys have 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I mean, I guess they're very tasty. So, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, before we dive into some of the topics today, um, let me start by asking, like, what's your elevator pitch to the world today? And, you know, if you could summarize the work that you do into one kind of impact statement, what would it be? Sure. Uh our mission at Orby Parker uh, is to inspire and impact the world with vision, purpose, and style without charging a premium for it. I like it. Now, you founded Warby Parker back in 2010 with your co-founders, and I think a lot of people at this point are pretty familiar with the brand and its offerings, but at the time, why was a brand like yours needed in, in the world, in the business world? Why was it, um, yeah, why was it needed? <laughs> Yeah, so we really started Warby Parker to solve our own problems. So I'd lost a very expensive uh, pair of glasses, my only pair of glasses that cost me $700 um, right before I was starting grad school. I had uh, quit my job in finance, handed in my company issued BlackBerry on my last day of work, and uh, then traveled for six months, uh, kind of backpacking, staying in hostels, and and along the way, lost lost that pair of glasses. And so came back to the U.S., um, started my MBA program, and I needed to buy two things, a new pair of glasses and a new phone. Uh, went to the Apple store, bought this magical device, uh, the new iPhone for $200, and then realized I was going to uh, have to pay several hundred dollars more um, for a pair of glasses. And that uh, just didn't make sense to me that this technology has been around for hundreds of years, was going to cost more than this magical computer I could keep in my pocket. Um, and quickly realized that there were lots of other uh, frustrated consumers. And, and as we learned kind of more about uh, the, the eyewear industry, realized that there was no good reason for uh, these high prices, and and so we set out to change that. And um, and as kind of founders, we yeah had uh, these acute personal experiences where we're frustrated uh, consumers, and we thought we could kind of build a, a different type of a business. And um, and we spent as much time in those early days talking about the type of organization that we wanted to build, and and recognized that um, you know we could solve kind of a, a business problem, we could solve. Uh, problems for customers, but we also wanted to create an organization that we were motivated uh, to come to work to every day, and and that would keep us engaged not only uh, to kind of launch that business, but uh, to scale it for years and and decades to come. And and so we uh, spent a year and a half uh, kind of articulating um, all aspects of of the business, and, and ended up launching out of our apartments while we were full time students uh, back in 2010 to offer glasses for a fraction of the price of what you could find uh, in traditional retail stores, sell them online for every pair of glasses uh, uh, we sold, we would distribute a pair to someone in need. And uh, now we're, um, yeah, more than uh, 12 years later, um, still still at it and, and still, you know, get excited every uh, every time I walk into the office or uh, hop into a meeting with with our team and and just see kind of lots of continued opportunity for us to scale our business and, and, and brand from here. Right. So, I mean, incredible story. And and I love the way that you were just able to summarize that whole experience in as succinctly as you were able to do it. Um, building on that, you know, it's been 12 years since the company was founded. Why is a company like Warby Parker needed today? Like, are you trying to solve the same problems or are there new problems that you're trying to tackle? How has that evolved in terms of the day one and, and today? 
Yeah, so, um, you know, what got us excited about uh, this opportunity was that it's a massive industry uh, and a product that most people, uh, most people need a, a form of vision correction. And, and as a result, uh, the optical industry is massive, $44 billion in the U.S., $160 billion globally. And it has been controlled by a very small number of companies that have artificially kept prices high have resulted in a poor customer experience, low customer satisfaction, very little innovation, and so uh, very little investment in technology. And, and that enabled us to, to come in in 2010 with a very different model, um, selling glasses uh, with prescription lenses for $95 and instead of several hundred, selling them online, um, having options for like our home try-on program and virtual try-on. And, and, uh, kind of thinking very differently uh, about the category. And we also realized that even at $95, there are lots of people around the globe, and including in, in the U.S., that um, can't afford glasses. And, and we sought out to, to solve that through some of our nonprofit partnerships. And uh, today, uh, now 12 years later, all those same dynamics still exist. So uh, we've grown uh, quickly. I think we've had a lot of direct impact um, our, ourselves. We just announced that we've distributed over 10 million pairs of glasses uh, to people in need through our buy a pair, give a pair program, uh, which is hugely motivating uh, for, for our team and something that we're all very proud of. And, and our uh, goals to continue to have that direct impact, continue to offer a you know, better experience to our customers, continue to, to help as many people see as possible through some of these philanthropic relationships. We also hope to inspire a lot of other entrepreneurs and a lot of other companies and, and prove that you can build uh, a scalable, profitable business that's doing good in the world and that doing so enables uh, organizations like ours to attract and retain the uh, most motivated, passionate uh, employees who are driven to create impact and um, you know, we're, I think we're starting to, uh, to see um, a lot of other uh, kind of startups um, who have seen uh, what we're doing and, and build uh, kind of similar models. And, and uh, we're super excited about that. Uh, we uh, know that we're not going to you know, solve every problem uh, on our own. And so um, if there are others that uh, can use entrepreneurship as a force for good and, and view uh, kind of our approach is, is one that, that they can use in, in different contexts um, that, that gets us super excited. And so we recognize that, you know, the, the world's problems are, are um, only getting bigger and, and more complex over time. And, and we fundamentally believe that you can use business to, to do good. And hopefully we're, we're on a path uh, to prove that. Yeah. And I mean, you've been able to scale the business with your team uh, over the years since you guys were founded. Once you, you know, establish your goalposts and you surpass those goals, what's, you know, what has been the experience for you in terms of reestablishing the new goalposts once you kind of hit those milestones, as you mentioned, or on the other side of the coin, how do you know when to not overbuild and when to stop and to let things breathe for a minute? You know, what does that decision making process look like for you? Yeah, so when we launched, um, you know, we were business school students, a few of us on the founding team had worked in consulting and finance, and uh, we were pretty good at building financial models. And so we, you know, put together this really detailed five-year forecast um, and kind of, you know, thought we had all our assumptions uh, fully, fully thought out. And then 
the day we launched, uh, we had these great features in GQ and Vogue, and all of a sudden uh, became kind of this viral uh, phenomenon on um, on the internet. And we hit our first year sales targets in three weeks. We sold out of all our inventory. We had a wait list of twenty thousand customers, and and realized that that you know financial model was completely worthless. And and uh, we ended up. Um, you know, dramatically overachieving relative to, to our expectations. You know, ever since that that first day, I think we you know continue to set ambitious targets for ourselves. But then, as we move towards those targets, we recognize that there are new adjacent opportunities, and there um, we kind of continually raise the bar um, around the uh, the growth that we think is achievable, the impact that we think is achievable. Our North Star is really uh, kind of putting the customer at the, the center of everything we do. And, and as a direct consumer brand, uh, we're fortunate that we have, uh, we get so much uh, feedback and so much data from our end customers who tell us when we're doing things uh, amazingly well and we're exceeding their expectations. And they tell us um, when they're disappointed or when um, there's friction in the process or when there's something that uh, they would like to see changed. And, and we use uh, net promoter score as kind of the best uh, kind of measure uh, that that customer satisfaction, um, which we survey every single customer um, and ask them um, on a scale from zero to 10, how likely are you to refer us to a friend? And then ask them a follow-up question, um, what's the primary uh, reason that you just gave that score? And then you take all the people who uh, rated us a uh, eight or above, subtract all the people that uh, rate us five or below. And, and then uh, we have our, our net promoter score and our, our score has been in the eighties for our entire uh, existence. And, um, and we segment you know, by every uh, possible part of our business. So um, looking at online customers versus those who shopped in stores, we looked at the net promoter scores coming out of um, any individual store, which optical lab we actually cut lenses and inserted them into frames and shipped them out to customers. Uh, we look at uh, how long it took us to deliver uh, those glasses to a customer after they they ordered and segment uh, by the number of days and, and look at uh, customers who got an eye exam from us versus those who didn't. Um, and that enables us to have a, a really strong uh, finger on the pulse of what's going well. And if we ever see uh, kind of any issues that um, result in lower customer satisfaction, lower net promoter scores, then we'll pause and, uh, and invest in, in that area to make sure that we're continuing to deliver the best possible experience, the best possible products. Um, and so really kind of that, uh, that remains our, our North star. We're always uh, looking to, to achieve and, and, Overall, our, our philosophy is one of sustainable growth, um, where we want to make sure we're growing quickly and, and uh, capitalizing on the, all the white space in front of us to grow both from a financial perspective, but also scale our, our impact. And we want to do that in a way that is not uh, just kind of maximizing our growth for this month, this quarter, this year, but also enables us to continue that growth for, for many years and decades to come. And ultimately, we want Warby Parker to be one of the most impactful brands in the world 100 years from now. Um, and so 
we're now 12 years in, but still feel like we're building the foundation um, for what our brand and, and, and business can be um, over the very long run. Yeah, and I definitely want to touch on, you know, impact and how you guys define that, um, as well as the brand experience too. But what would you say has been more important in your experience? Or how do you relate to these two things, progress versus perfection? Because I think as founders, you always want to make sure that the best possible version of your company or your brand or your product is out there. But then that can also sometimes halt progress. And we've had this conversation with other founders like, you know, Joey Zwillinger from Allbirds and a few other big founders that have kind of grappled between these two things. So how do you relate to progress versus perfection in your experience? Well, we um, want to always have extremely high standards. Uh, recognize that um, you know, sometimes perfection can get in the way of moving quickly and that perfection can be the, the enemy of the good or the, or the great. If we had to choose between the two, uh, we're going to choose progress 100% of the time. Uh, we want to make sure that we're moving quickly, uh, that we're being flexible and agile, that we're kind of taking one step at a time, that we can learn from what works and, or what doesn't in that first step. Um, and then we can continue to adjust and refine and uh, really view our flexibility and agility as a competitive advantage. And, and the philosophy uh, around uh, that, that type of growth has been you know, the predominant method that software developers use now around agile uh, methodology, where um, instead of taking you know, a many month process and kind of trying to build everything in coordination and then you flip a switch at the end and kind of hope things work, right? Engineers have, have moved to one week or two week or three week sprints um, where they try to deliver as much value as possible, flip code live, see uh, what they can learn during that process and then um, adjust. And, and um, sometimes that leads to some uh, inefficiency, but what, we've found, and I think what most uh, software developers have found is that it ultimately leads to uh, delivering uh, impact sooner um, and that there are a lot of learnings along the way that uh, can then be incorporated for a better final product. And so uh, we've tried to take that that same approach with everything we do, including um, you know, parts of our business that traditionally have not been flexible and have not been agile, like opening retail stores. So we now, you know, in addition to our uh, digital offerings. Uh, we have over 160 stores. Uh, we'll have over 200 uh, by the end of this year across the U.S. and Canada. And uh, we've worked with landlords and, and pushed landlords to think in creative ways where um, historically a brand or retailer would um, sign an initial term of 10 to 15 years um, for that lease. Yeah, for us, um, you know, we feel like we have a pretty good pulse on kind of where consumers are going, but um, us trying to predict what the world looks like uh, 10 or 15 years from now, um, we, we don't have you know, confidence that our, our predictions uh, would be remotely accurate. And so uh, we've really pushed landlords to think about um, shorter initial lease terms, uh, anywhere from you know, five years. We've even had um, some of our first stores um, where the initial lease term was 18 to 36 months. And then we included a bunch of options to extend um, if things were going well and, um, and have just tried to you know, maintain as much flexibility in every part of our business so that we can 
move forward uh, and um, see what we learn and, and adjust accordingly. Yeah, and and when we talk about you know the brand experience and the experience that your audience and your consumers have when they either are on the site or in the store, you know, in your experience, what do you think makes up for you know the recipe for a great brand experience and especially within you know Warby Parker's standpoint you know what does it mean to create like a human-centered experience in such a digital world and then conversely how do you bring the innovation of a digital world into a physical store yeah so uh, we talk a lot about how uh, happiness equals reality minus expectations and you know our consumer expectations uh, continue to increase uh, from a convenience standpoint, um, speed, uh, ease of use, and we think that's a, a good thing. Uh, but it yeah forces uh, businesses and brands to you know constantly raise uh, the bar in, in, in terms of the, the experience that they're delivering. Um, now we we're also fortunate that we operate in a category that has not had a lot of innovation, and and the the average net promoter score. Um, in the optical industry is below 30. Um, it's the same as the airline industry. Um, and <laughs> as we talk to uh, consumers, they uh, tend to be very frustrated in that um, uh, they would walk into an optical shop. There'd be a bunch of frames behind lock and key. They'd have to ask a store associate to uh, you know, unlock a case, someone who's staring at them as they're trying on frames. Um, and then they're constantly being upsold on different lens types and coding. So they don't really understand um, what they're buying or what the, the difference in the product is. Uh, next thing they know, they walk out um, with a bill for several hundred dollars. And so we really wanted to start kind of from first principles and um, as outsiders to the category, but as frustrated consumers, ask ourselves, you know, what, how do we like to shop? And um, what's the experience that would uh, be convenient, uh, accessible, uh, and, and delightful to, to us. And, and that started with it selling, figuring out how to sell glasses online. You know, we asked ourselves, well, what would be required, uh, you know, for us to, uh, you know, get excited about that customer experience, you know, number one, uh, you'd have to have free shipping and free returns, even though it's a, you know, fully customized uh, product that's made to order really want to de-risk the purchase process as much as possible. Um, and then said, okay, even before that, how do we, uh, get people to uh, find frames that, uh, that they like and that, that they know are going to fit their face. And we came up with kind of a, a, a few different ideas, but ultimately we realized that the best way was just to get as many glasses on people's faces as possible. And so we came up with its first of its kind home try-on program where customers could come to our website, select any five frames that they want. Uh, we'd send them for free, uh, pay for return uh, shipping, just um, reduce the barriers to shopping, trying on glasses and, and uh, making that as, as easy as possible. Uh, since we launched, we've also uh, now introduced uh, some additional technology uh, just to make the, the shopping process as easy as possible. Um, we have a virtual try-on now in our iPhone app. We worked with Apple and we were the, uh, kind of came out with the first true-to-scale virtual try-on in our category um, where we take 30,000 uh, measurements of your face um, and uh, we can digitally show you exactly what you'd look like in any uh, in any pair of glasses that we offer uh, from wherever you are. 
And then we've also, um, you know, tried to rethink the uh, process around getting prescriptions. Um, we kept hearing from customers that it was uh, very frustrating for people who knew that they could see perfectly well out of their existing glasses or contacts, but uh, we were telling them that we can't send them a new pair, we can't send them uh, a new set of contacts because their prescriptions expired. Um, and so we thought, okay, well, what is a traditional eye exam? Um, what is kind of the first step in that process? Um, you walk into a room where there's a chair that has been um, set at a defined distance away from a screen. Um, and then there are objects, um, often letters, that are displayed on that screen, and you indicate what you can see well and what you can't. Well, everyone has a screen in their pocket now, so what if we could determine the distance that someone is standing away from that screen, then we could display objects on that screen and, and ask customer or patient to uh, indicate what they can see and what they can't. Um, and so our uh, team of uh, computer vision PhDs and data scientists came up um, with this novel algorithm where we can ask you to prop up um, your iPhone against uh, a wall and we can measure the precise distance that you're standing away from that phone. We'll ask you to move back exactly 10 feet. Once you're there, we'll display letters on the screen and ask you to, to read them out. Um, and then an ophthalmologist who's licensed in uh, your state uh, can write you a, a prescription remotely. So we've um, really tried to think about uh, kind of what are the, the main problems that customers um, have uh, and how can we, you know, create the most delightful experience uh, that is quick and convenient, but um, also fun and, and, and user friendly. Um, and that kind of started in the online world. And, and since we started opening stores, uh, we've you know, try to rethink the entire shopping process in stores. So if you walk into any one of one of our stores, they look dramatically different from a typical optical shop where all the frames are out on open shelving. Uh, we have um, our retail advisors who are not working on commission, who are really there to help if um, you want advice or have questions. All our uh, pricing um, is inclusive of uh, the highest quality lenses, they come standard with all the coatings that you would need. There's kind of no um, real upselling that, that happens in our stores and um, have just tried to create an experience that is convenient and, and fun for all our customers. And I guess that's kind of really what it comes down to when you talk about entrepreneurship is being able to solve problems and wrap it in an experience that is delightful to the consumer or to the person that is going to be utilizing the product or service. Yeah, absolutely. It, the nail on the head, entrepreneurship is about solving problems. And, and in order to solve those problems, you have to really understand them and, and have to understand um, what your customers are going through, understand why um, existing solutions are not meeting their needs. Uh, and then um, design new products, new services uh, that are significantly better than anything else on the market and that you know, consumers only willing to kind of switch from the way that they're used to doing something if there's something that's dramatically better. And the bigger the switch that you're asking them to make, uh, the higher the bar um, for the value that you're delivering. And so for us, when you know, especially when we were launching in 2010, asking 
people to buy prescription glasses online realized that 99.99% of our customers had never considered that before. And so um, how could we deliver an experience that wasn't, you know, 50% better than you know, traditional optical shops, but was 10 or 100 times better from uh, the, the value and the, and the customer experience that they were getting. Yeah. And just building on that, you know, how do you think that entrepreneurship can be of service to the community? Because for Warby Parker, um, since day one, it's been integrated into building and, and interacting, engaging and giving back to the community um, while also solving a problem. What, what do you think is the most powerful thing that entrepreneurs can do for their communities outside of solving you know, a, a business problem? Yeah, um, you know, I think it it really depends on the the type of, of business, but you know, our our belief is that you know all organizations should exist for a reason, should exist to solve problems, and and those problems can you know, be um, uh, problems that your your customers have, but organizations can uh, also uh, be a, a force for good and and change societal um, issues, and and you know, for for us we recognized that the problems that we were solving for our customers were problems that are, uh, they're human problems. And, and there's a significant portion of the, the world's population that, that doesn't have access to the, the products that we were delivering for our customers who were you know, buying glasses from us. And, and, and so we've really tried to build in uh, an ethos uh, that, uh, you know, Warby Parker uh, exists to to do good, and and um, that you know, needs to to start with our customers, but it it extends far beyond that. And and uh, the communities in which we uh, engage require kind of a different set of solutions as we think about kind of our uh, our desire to just help the world see and uh, help ensure that every human being on the planet has um, access to, to basic tools that can help them see, that can help them learn to work, to provide for their families, that we need to design um, solutions that, that meet the needs of, of each specific community. And so finding um, a model that works in rural Bangladesh or rural Guatemala and villages that don't have access to clean water or electricity or access to eye doctors. It's going to be very different uh, than going into schools in New York City and ensuring that kind of every student there has um, you know, a pair of glasses that they need. But we have a responsibility to uh, create as much impact as possible, and and that um, we, uh, as our organization scales, and and as we have more resources, um, that we're able to have more impact and and help more people over time. And you know, how do you define impact? What does that mean to you? Yeah, impact uh, means helping people, improving uh, the lives of as many people uh, as possible. And for us, again, spending so much time uh, within the world of vision uh, and having um, you know, an acute understanding personally of how impactful a pair of glasses um, and, and proper eye care can be uh, for changing the trajectory of someone's life is, is something where we're, we're super passionate about. And, and for us, it feels like a failure of society that uh, there are two and a half billion people around the globe that need access to uh, to glasses that don't have access to them, and and 
Um, you know, I've been wearing glasses or, or contacts every day since I was 12 years old, and I can't imagine you know living a, a single day you know without this simple technology that's been around for hundreds of years, and uh, yet such a significant portion of the world's population is impaired um, on a daily basis. And we're working to uh, to solve that, and um, you know we're trying to have as much direct impact ourselves as we can. Also. Um, want to shine a spotlight on kind of how big an issue uh, this is and, and and giving someone a pair of glasses has been shown to uh, improve their income and earning potential by 20 to 35 percent. And uh, so it's one of the most effective poverty alleviation tools in the world. Uh, when people are able to see, they, you know, they tend to spend that increased income on uh, the health and education uh, and well-being of their families. And so there's this kind of multiplier effect. And so, um, you know, having seen how impactful the uh, the programs that um, uh, that we put in place with a lot of our nonprofit partners, it, uh, it's just hugely motivating to to try to do more and, and try to reach more and more people. Right. And, and Warby Parker actually recently worked with Johns Hopkins University to put together a study that spoke to I guess the broader impact that glasses can have on outside of being literally be able to see, but like on education and and work and and all that. Can you speak to, you know, kind of those key findings from that study? When we started the company, we 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 launched our buy a pair, give a pair program the, you know, the same day that we we launched selling glasses, and we have some great nonprofit partners around the world, uh, including Vision Spring, where my co-founder Neil uh, worked for several years before. Uh, before we met. And so through his work, we recognized how impactful kind of their model is in a number of, of countries around the world. And, and we're very grateful for, uh, for their partnership and all the work that they're doing. Over the last 12 plus years, we also realized that there's a massive need in our own backyard um, here in the U.S. and in you know, places like New York City, right? One of the wealthiest uh, places on the planet. Uh, there are 1.1 million students in New York City public schools, and we estimate that over 200,000 of them need glasses and, and don't have access to them. Uh, these tend to be uh, children in, in low-income parts of the city. Yeah, when we discovered this, uh, we tried to you know, see kind of what, what's the right solution here and kind of how can we you know, create as much impact as possible and realized that the, the best way to, to reach these students was to kind of address uh, these needs where, where they are. And so to actually go into schools, um, not ask these kids or their families to go somewhere, um, but that we wouldn't make it as easy uh, for them as possible. And so we set up a program called Pupils Project where we bring in eye doctors to the schools, do uh, vision screenings and eye exams for free, and then any student who needs glasses, uh, we provide them for free uh, from, from Warby Parker. And, um, and this program has been uh, massively successful. We've now expanded it to a number of other cities in Baltimore, uh, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, a number uh, of school districts in California. And one of the things that we wanted to make sure was that um, these programs were actually effective and, and that they were actually helping um, students as, as much as we uh, suspected that they would. And um, so we worked with Johns Hopkins, and they did a three-year study um, where they you know, tracked uh, test scores from students who received glasses uh, through this program. And they found that 
for the, the students who um, received classes, it was the equivalent of them having an additional two to four months of schooling um, each school year. Um, and they said this is one of the most powerful um, uh, interventions that they've ever seen in uh, the world of education. And, and they found that um, students who came in with the lowest scores found uh, an even bigger benefit of uh, the equivalent of four to six months of extra schooling each year. It makes sense if, if students can't see, um, they can't learn. Um, we found that a lot of these students um, were misdiagnosed with um, ADHD or special needs, um, or they simply just disengaged in school because they, they weren't able to achieve. And, and uh, we're really excited by uh, the the progress that that we're making, um, we think studies like this hopefully will generate more attention, uh, generate uh, kind of more funding uh, for these types of programs, and, and our hope is to continue to scale Pupils Project and uh, make sure that uh, every every student um, who needs classes has access to them. I know that you make a distinction between donating glasses and distributing glasses. And you know, my question around that is when it comes to the buy a pair, give a pair program, how do you go beyond the kind of one for one model? Because is it, you know, there's a dialogue around, you know, whether it's enough to distribute or, or donate a, a product without the financial resources to help lift communities up. So what is the distinction that you're making there? Yeah, so uh, Vision Spring um, has a, a really thoughtful model where they want to make sure that they're having, uh, they're helping people see, um, but are not creating a culture of dependence and um, and that they're offering solutions that uh, people in communities around the world actually value. Um, and so we work with them where we kind of fund uh, the distribution of glasses, but those glasses um, are actually um, sold by members of uh, the communities and in, in the countries in, in which Vision Spring operates. And so India or, or, or Bangladesh or El Salvador or Guatemala, they'll find locals in those communities, train them to become entrepreneurs, uh, to go um, into different regions of the country, administer uh, vision tests, and then sell subsidized glasses uh, into those communities. And, and um, as a result, it creates jobs. It forces accountability that these are products that people value um, and that they're you know, willing to pay uh, anywhere from 2 to $10, depending on uh, the part of the world. And it uh, creates a much more sustainable solution and, and uses entrepreneurship to create impact. And so those are programs that have scaled in, in many regions of the world. Uh, when we thought about um, kind of setting up Pupils Project for um, students um, in low-income areas around the U.S., we really wanted to make sure that we were uh, kind of reaching as many students as possible and we weren't having, that there weren't any barriers uh, to get classes on uh, on students' faces, as, and some of these students are in, in kindergarten or first grade, and uh, there we've worked uh, just to, to offer these classes for free. You know, we've tried to be thoughtful about the, the methods that 
uh, we have impact depending on the problem that we're trying to solve. Yeah, that's that's great. Now we're still, you know, reemerging from the pandemic, and obviously, the world has learned a lot from the last few years. What's your biggest takeaway as uh, as a business owner, as uh, an industry leader, and just someone that's trying to run his own business too? I'd say my biggest takeaway is just I'm incredibly impressed with how resilient people are. And um, just looking at you know what our team has gone through um, over the last two years of having our lives and our business you know completely turned upside down, and seeing how our team has come together, how we've come up with creative solutions around how we work together. Uh, we used to you know, have a very much uh, in office culture. Everyone was here five days a week, and then you know one day uh, in March 2020, all of a sudden. Uh, we were kind of forced to to come up with new ways of working, find ways to continue to serve customers um, while we were each dealing with our own stresses and, and issues in our in our own lives. And we we felt a real uh, responsibility given that we sell a product that people need people need to see, and we're one of the only uh, companies in our category that has a robust e-commerce offering that has a telemedicine offering. And so we were able to continue to serve customers, um, throughout the course of the pandemic, even when we closed all of our stores, when most eye doctors and most optical shops shut their doors, we were able to continue to, to serve customers. And we felt a real responsibility to keep our operations up and running, um, throughout the pandemic. And we're able to do that, um, successfully. And, we also, um, you know, quickly spun up new solutions where we, uh, you know, basically set up something called a virtual vision consultation where our customers could uh, essentially do a, a video chat with our optometrists and opticians. We introduced our virtual vision test um, where uh, people could renew their prescriptions online. We added functionality to our virtual try-on and um, and really just tried to move as quickly as possible to spin up new features, new functionality that would enable us um, uh, to continue to serve customers in a world that's changing faster than ever, where you know customers were uh, were not as comfortable shopping um, in in locations with uh, with other people, and and uh, then when we reopened our stores, kind of thinking about how to reimagine the entire. Um, shopping experience for customers and keep our customers safe, keep our team safe, and uh, just been hugely impressed by the the creativity and and the collaboration that that we've seen across our business. And you know, as we talk to uh, to peers, uh, just the kind of overall uh, resilience that that we've seen from uh, from our community. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, with the last few years in mind, I mean, we've gone through a lot, uh, you know, outside of a pandemic, there's also been like, you know, social rights movements, there's been environmental uh, catastrophes, there's been political volatility, and all of these things are kind of interrelated in a way too. At the end of the day, how can we remind ourselves of our humanity as companies, CEOs, entrepreneurs, and leaders? Like, how do we approach business with more humility and empathy yeah i think there's um you know has to be recognition that you know employees are human beings and that they are going to be impacted by 
um, issues that happen kind of outside of their their core job responsibilities. And so I think you've seen you know, some companies not make statements that uh, you know employees are not allowed to talk about anything that is not work related. And, um, we don't think that's realistic. Uh, you know, we recognize that our team members are impacted by world events and by you know issues that are impacting them individually, their families, their their communities, and you know more than anything, we we want to live with um, you know live by our, our core values that uh, we established when we were kind of early on in his business. And uh, one of those values is treat others as they want to be treated and uh, really kind of build in this concept of empathy and recognize that, uh, you know, the issues that I'm going through are not the same um, as other ones that, that you're going through. And, and um, if we're going to be a team, if we're going to work together uh, to solve problems, we first need to understand you know, understand each other and and the things that are uh, you know impacting each of us. And so, our hope is that you know the world continues to to be more empathetic. Um, you know, I think our hope was that you know something like a pandemic that is indiscriminate that impacts all of humanity, um, yeah. regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of geography or race or religion. Our hope uh, was that that might bring people together. You know, I'm not sure that it, it, it actually has, um, but I remain an optimist and, and hopefully we're, you know, over over the long run are um, on a trajectory where uh, there's kind of more more empathy uh, in love than uh, than division. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so at the beginning of our chat, you spoke about your mission, but at the end of the day, what is the mission? What's the bigger purpose, the bigger picture for you and also for the company? Yeah, so uh, you know, ultimately, we want to uh, create vision for all, uh, and uh, we mean that you know, both literally and, and figuratively. So on the literal side, I want to make sure that every human being um, who needs vision correction has access to the the tools that can enable them to see. Then on uh, on the figurative side, um, we hope that we can demonstrate that a business can scale, be profitable, uh, and do good in the world, and uh, along the way. Um, you know, inspire a lot of other organizations to uh, to think along the same lines and and um, have a lot of uh, impact um, on their own. I love it. Great. Thank you so much. I want to spend just the last two minutes here just going through rapid fire questions for fun. You know, you could do one word answers, anecdotes, um, whatever comes to mind first, and then, you know, we can wrap up there. How's that sound? Sounds good. Okay, productivity hack. Maybe counterintuitive, but um, sleep. I've been. Uh, I used to be someone who, yeah, thought productivity meant minimizing the number of hours slept <laughs> um, and kind of staying up all night. And now I realize that I could be much more productive and efficient if I actually uh, get more than seven hours of sleep. Yeah, it makes sense for sure. Uh, coffee or tea? I'm a big coffee drinker. Yeah. Uh, guilty pleasure. That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> it could be a snack, a show, whatever is kind of your escape. Yeah, I guess I'm watching We Crashed now. I think oh, yeah. you know, some of the yeah, entrepreneurial uh, meltdowns or kind of shows have, have been uh, 
interesting recently. <laughs> yeah, for sure. How do you take care of yourself after like a bad moment or a day? Like what's your self-care kind of like number one go-to? Love to be outdoors, uh, uh, just kind of going for a walk or jog or go surfing. Um, like just anything out, out in nature I find is very healing. Current book on your nightstand? I'm reading the Empire of Pain um, about the the Sackler dynasty, which is really interesting, also very disturbing. Yeah. Current work trend that you can't wait for to go away. Zoom. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. Uh, Best career advice you've ever received? The best businesses solve real problems. And so uh, really focus on what problem is... Uh, existing solutions are not good enough for. Um, what do you find to be extremely frustrating in your own life? What do you hear your family members, peers um, complaining about all the time? And why do you think you can do something better than than others can? Great. Thank you so much, uh, Dave. I really appreciate you taking the time. It was wonderful getting to know you and to chatting and listening um, and getting your insights on everything. So um, I appreciate you taking the time and and hopefully the next time we chat it won't be over zoom it'll be irl uh in toronto or new york and uh yeah um, i would love that and yeah thanks for having me on this uh this was fun it's been about 12 years since warby parker was founded by four intrepid entrepreneurs with the vision of a better future and while the brand has certainly managed to summit one milestone after another its mission its North Star, has remained the same throughout, to put the customer at the center of everything that they do. What happens when you focus on the customer instead of one single problem or a series of problems is an evolution where the goalposts are continually moving. David and his team have not only managed to build one of today's most impactful and delightful brands, but one that uses business as a force for good. It's an example for all of us to follow. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts so we can get the word out. To keep up to date, subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, ask yourself, what's your mission?